Happy Saturday. It is April 8th, 2023, and you are listening to Morning Meeting. I'm Ashley Baker in New York. And I'm Michael Haney, also in New York, and I'm so happy because I've got Ashley out in my city again, our city. I got to see you yesterday. We had our little traditional welcome home coffee at Bar Pisolino. So it's a good weekend here. It's a good week to have you back. Michael, we are nothing if not predictable. It was the most glorious kind of spring day in the village yesterday. The cherry blossoms were blooming. Everyone was wearing their hype beast clothing. It just felt like you were in the set of a film and it was heaven on earth. And it was really great. I got to see not only you, a ton of our airmail colleagues as well. Uh, life is very good. And it, we're village people. What can we say? It's the best of times down there. Life is good and it's getting better because we've got a great show today. The wonderful knowledgeable, much lauded, much decorated food and wine writer, Alan Richmond, will be here to answer a question that's nagging so many New Yorkers. Just why are restaurants so damn expensive all of a sudden? Later, Linda Wells is going to stop by to discuss the new edition of Airmail Look, our new publication dedicated to all things beauty and wellness. And finally, Elena Claverino has the fascinating story of a cursed palazzo and why it has remained empty for decades in Italy. Pretty great show. Where do you want to begin, Ashley? Fascinating. I mean, I think we should talk about the price of New York restaurants because I went out last night and I didn't really have sticker shock at the restaurant because my order was carefully honed, but I did have sticker shock at the taxi cabs. I mean, it was $44 to get from my house down to Soho. It was ridiculous. I mean, it's like in London, that, that would take you all the way out to Windsor practically. I mean, what is going on with the prices of taxi? Anyway, New York City is out of control. Alan Richmond is here to tell us all about it. Alan is 16-time James Beard award-winning writer covering the topics of food and wine and travel. And he's written so many memorable stories for GQ. And now fortunately, we have him here with us at Airmail, the one, the only Alan Richmond. Thank you. I love that introduction. Michael, you never introduced me as well as Ashley just did. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't have a podcast back then, Alan, but I picked up the tab. So I think it's a balance, right? <laughs> We're a great editor. We just compete for Alan's affections. That's pretty much all Michael and I do these days. Who does he like best? We're just an old married couple. We just bicker. So Alan, it's always so much fun to work with you. And when we were talking about ideas for your next story, we kept coming back to this one thing. We love eating out. You love writing about eating out. But the prices in New York City are astronomical. Can you explain to us, first of all, what is going on? Well, from what I gather from reporting this story is that everything is going on. And everything that causes prices to be reasonable doesn't exist anymore. From the cost of getting help to the cost of food, it just never stops. And I guess to a certain degree, I understand it. But in a certain degree, I also say this is out of sight. This is incredibly crazy. Now, for those of us who don't understand what kind of numbers we're talking about, how much does it cost to eat out in New York City? We're talking about a kind of an average non-white tablecloth restaurant dinner for two. Well, I think if you're lucky, a lot depends on where or not you're going to order a bottle of wine with your dinner. But if you order a bottle of wine at an average restaurant, you no way you get out for under $100 a person. It just is almost impossible. Does that include dessert for that? Throw in dessert will be sported, yes. But as you know, the price of ingredients has gone up crazily. The price of labor, even as a lot of chefs say that you quote in your story, the delivery drivers are now charging for the deliveries, right? But you mentioned a minute ago wine. And I think, can you just explain a concrete example, which is a bottle of wine that you found on the list at Gramercy Tavern and how that markup indicates kind of what kind of universe we're working in right now? Well, that's the one thing that I don't understand, the markups on wine. I mean, wine is costing a little more than it used to. It hasn't gone crazy, except, of course, of these magnificent 
the made de la Romandie Conti type of wines. They've gone out of sight. Wines can be $5,000, $10,000 a bottle now. And the wines that normal people drink, prices, yes, have gone up, but not out of sight. And restaurants are now marking them up, I would say, five times what they pay for it. And it's just insane. A bottle of wine that might cost the restaurant $15, $16 can be in the high 80s. And when you add on tax and tip, it could be even more than $100 for that bottle of wine. And I just don't think that's right. Maybe they're going to say we need to make the money. I have no sympathy for that at all. Alan, let's talk about when you first started eating out in New York City. You recall a great anecdote from what a meal at La Bernadette. First of all, what did it used to cost to eat there? And what does it cost now to eat at La Bernadette? And why should we pay for that? Well, one reason you should pay for La Bernadette is it's probably the best restaurant in the city and maybe one of the great restaurants in America. Well, I don't say maybe, it is. And what it used to cost was, I think it was in the 30s. You got a three-course meal for 35 or $32. I don't remember exactly what it was. But now that same meal is going to end up costing you $150. And is it worth it? I think if you're going to the best, you can say to yourself, this is worth it because I know it's going to be great food, great service. Everything's going to be perfect. And I'm going to live with it. But my real problem is the restaurants that are no better than they used to be and are serving okay food are charging those same kind of upticks in prices. And I just... There's got to be a way around that. There just has to be. But again, a lot of it could be justified by the cost of ingredients, the cost of labor, the cost of rent. Rent is an unbelievable now in Manhattan. So I guess I, in a way I sympathize with them, but I also more sympathize with the customer who has to pay that much money. Now, Alan, I was out last night downtown eating at Charlie Bird. It was body to body in that place. I mean, are diners being deterred by these prices or are we just sucking it up because it is so much fun to go out and eat in this city? Well, that's a good question. I think restaurants are doing well. The good ones, the really good ones, are doing great. I mean, some of them you can't get into. So there's enough demand for the top restaurants that they're doing okay. And you can still go to restaurants that I like, and I go on there and I try to make a reservation, and they're booked solidly for the next three weeks. So people are still eating. People are still going out. I don't know where they're getting the money, but they're doing it. Now, Alan, we have a lot of listeners from all over the world who travel to New York and hopefully are coming this summer to visit. Three restaurants, Alan Richmond approved, that they absolutely must eat at. Go. Oh, boy. Well, you have to eat at La Bernadette, which is the best seafood restaurant in America for sure and maybe in the world. The prices are high. I think it's like about a $200 per person for a four-course meal. And that's an awful lot of money, but it's worth it. Other restaurants you should eat at if you come here? That's a really good question based on the price ratio. The other restaurants I like, let's not worry about price. There's a new restaurant called Cucina Alba, a new Italian restaurant that is really quite wonderful. And there's a place, a new restaurant that's sort of Austrian, Eastern European called Colomon. And I think that's wonderful too. If I was at eight and three restaurants, it would be those three right now. Machina and Bolemon and the Bernadette. Alan, on top of that, though, you're a man, I know from my experience, who just loves a deal, loves a steal. I'll share with our listeners that I once sent Alan on a reporting trip to cover the wines of Spain, and he came back bragging to me that he, he took a bus between towns. And I said, you didn't have to take a bus. I took a bus, though. It was really it's quite a steal. Anyway, you're always looking for a steal. What do you think is a great value right now if you want to sort of look for a great cheap meal in New York City? Wow. Is that tough one to spring? Someone who gives you great value. I'm befuddled. I mean, if you say, is it worth the money? Again... You know where you could eat? It's not a bad idea to go to the casual bar of Le Bernardin 
where you can eat a la carte, pick out a few dishes. It won't be cheap, but you're going to get something wonderful. And there, the chef, Eric Repair, he has some of his great old dishes on the menu there at a reasonable price that you can snack there. That's what restaurant you can do, and it's up to you how much you want to spend. So that, I would say there. Another restaurant worth the money. Boy, it's hard to find one that I think is... Okay, but, but Alan, having dined with you many times, we talk about the cost of wine really sort of, in some cases, sounds like it's almost doubling the price of going out. Uh, and a great Alan Richmond trick was always to bring his own bottle of wine, something from his own cellar, and deal with the corkage fee, which... But so have they even like raised corkage fees? Is it even an alternative to save some money by bringing your own bottle of wine now? I mean, corkage fees are getting higher, but there's very few restaurants that are, they're not, the fees aren't exploding the way menu prices are, I don't think. I mean, it used to be the top it ever was was $75, maybe $100, which is a lot anyway. So don't bring cheap wines to these restaurants, it's not going to be worth it. If you could bring a good bottle of wine, it may be worth it. I've seen the highest price I've seen for corkage is $175, which is a little insane. But it's a great restaurant. If you want to bring your wine, you're going to pay for it. I don't really understand why wine has become a luxury to a profit margin item for restaurants. I guess they have to make more money. But I have very little sympathy for restaurants that raise the prices five times what they've paid for the bottle. That was never the case, and it's really really painful. We can just split a bottle of wine in the parking lot before we go into dinner. Maybe that's the solution. <laughs> I think that's a wonderful way. Yeah, it really is brilliant. Alan Richmond, you are a legend. Thank you for your story. Thank you for your insights. And thank you for joining us this morning. It was really a pleasure to see Michael. I miss uh, to see you finally. You look very pleasant. So that's a good sight. Thank you, Alan. See you soon. All right, Alan. Take care. Okay, you know what? Like when we go out to dinner with Alan, one thing's for sure, Alan's paying. Oh, he won't pay. No, no, no. I'm just going to give you a little advice as his editor now. You, the editor, you're going to pick up the check, but that's part of the pleasure. I'll tell you, it's a good story because as Alan also notes in his story this week, it used to be you could get a dollar slice of pizza in New York City. Now it's up to $1.50, so everything's changing. But one story I'm really curious about this week, speaking of pizza, is over in Venice where Elena Claverino has a sort of strange story about a haunted palazzo there, right? Yes, Michael. It turns out, well, one of the most historic palaces in Venice uh, may or may not be haunted. May or may not cause early death. We don't know, but Elena Claverino does. She is an associate editor here at Airmail here to tell us all about it. Welcome, Elena. So, Elena, welcome to the show. Thank you. Okay, Elena, I want to know all about this story because everyone loves Venice. A lot of people are probably going there this summer. But as you report in this week's issue, there's a particular street in Venice with a particular palazzo. It's been dark for a while that most people, well, certainly Venetians, will avoid. And it sounds like Americans and others should avoid. What's the story behind this place? I first came across Cadario. I was at a friend's house, which is just across the Grand Canal. And I asked him about it. And he said, I don't want to talk about this place because it's unlucky. So I did some digging into the story. And the story of its bad luck starts in like the late 1400s, when it was first constructed. The former owner, Giovanni Dario, had it constructed for his daughter, Marietta. And eventually, well, basically three things happen to the owners of the palazzo. One is bereavement, the other is bankruptcy, and the other is death. So first, Marietta's husband went bankrupt, and then he was apparently assassinated 
And she either died of suicide or heartbreak. It's kind of unclear from the stories. And then years later, their son was also murdered in Crete. And then from then on, everyone who owned it, pretty much over the centuries, befell similar tragic fates. I mean, it's a pretty riveting story. Okay, we all know that Italians love bad luck. They love the drama of believing there's bad luck. And I love the detail that you report that even the gondolieri won't park their gondolas near it. But how real do you think this is? And are you afraid to go inside of it? Would you be afraid to spend the night there? I mean, I'm Italian, so I believe in this kind of thing. Well, I mean, I would be afraid. The last few owners have all died from murder or suicide in very strange ways. I think the craziest was the sister of one of the owners, this woman called Nicoletta Ferrari, was found by the highway near her crashed car, completely naked, lying like completely straight under under flowers or something. So I mean, like that, I mean, that's really strange. I don't know. I would be scared. Well, it's a great story, Ellen, and thank you so much for sharing it. Now, we now know we're not to stay in Venice. Do you have any ideas where we should stay instead? Well, you could just stay across the water at the Grittian. I'm sure you'd be able to look at the palazzo and maybe have a chat about it without risking your life. Okay, now we're talking. Sounds like we have a good solution here. And since we do have you, besides where to stay in Venice, it's summer's coming up. Where do you think people should go in Italy this summer? I know you don't want to give away your secrets. I know you're not going to do that. No, I mean, honestly, my favorite Italian destination during the summer is the Aeolian Islands north of Sicily. And there's like five of them. They're all incredibly beautiful. And I think the best, I mean, the best possible plan, the water is always really flat between them, is if you rented like a small speedboat and you spent a few nights in one, a few nights in the other, it's one of the most incredible trips you can do. If you're lucky, you get to see Stromboli explode in the night. Yeah. Yes, which is one of my favorite parts. Always a little light show at the end of the evening. So fully agree with you. Elena, thank you for bringing us the story of the city's cursed and much whispered about Palazzo. If you find yourself in Venice this summer, go to, what's the address? 353 Dorsoduro Sestiere, no? Yes. <laughs> All right, Elena, thanks, thanks for being here. Always bringing us another great story. Thank you, guys. All right, Michael, next time we go to Venice, we're just staying at the gritty. There's no need to agonize over this. Get down to the nitty gritty. I'm ready. All right. Well, let's move on to Linda Wells. Another day has dawned. Another issue of Airmail Look has arrived. It is the first Friday of every month. And that means dot, 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 airmail.news backslash look has been uploaded with a fresh batch of fantastic stories you cannot miss. Linda Wells, the founding editor of Allure, the beauty and wellness columnist for Airmail, and the editor of Airmail Look will tell us all about it. Welcome, Linda. Hello, hello. All right, Linda, we've got a lot of good stories. Let's start with the filler of the future, Profilo. What is this? Tell us all about it. This is a filler that actually isn't a filler. It's an injection that comes from Europe and it is only approved in Europe. It's not approved yet in the U.S., but that hasn't stopped anybody from using it. What it does is it injected in a particular way. It gives your skin a kind of moistness from within. You always hear about you've got moisture from within, which is really a nonsensical claim from the skincare industry. But this actually does that. And what that does is it creates this sense of like dewiness and a fullness to your face that doesn't change its contour. But as I said, it's not approved by the FDA in the U.S. and people are smuggling it in 
They're traveling to Europe to get these injections. And there are certain doctors who are smuggling the substance in to other doctors so that they can do it on the sly, which is illegal. All right. That's fascinating. We also talk a lot about cold plunges. In the ben- I mean, we're just going to do kind of a lightning round of all the great stories in the issue because there's so many that we want people to dive into. Airmail.news backslash look. Let's move on to cold plunges. All right. Danielle Pergament has tackled this topic for us. What are some of the benefits of freezing to death or are there any? Well, I don't think I would recommend freezing to death, but you could take it a little bit shorter than that. And actually, I personally experienced this when I went to the ranch at, in Italy. It's great. You, I mean, it sounds like hell, frankly, but you actually plunge your body into a very cold, about 47 degree tub, or even in the Nordic countries, they do it in the water. And it's supposed to increase your metabolism, reduce depression, improve your mood, and increase alertness. And and so I now do it at the end of every shower. I just put on a really cold shower and I feel like it's almost better than my cup of iced coffee. All right. Into that. All right. Now, we also talk about Ozempic and all the controversy behind that. Not necessarily the controversy behind it, but the shaming behind it. Now, it seems like you can't even lose weight without it becoming a loaded proposition. We're going to change roles right now. We're going to have a little role play. And I'm going to interview you, Ashley, because you've written about Ozempic and the issue of Look. And I want to know what drove you to write about this. You were quite impassioned. <laughs> well, I was having lunch with a friend of mine. And as we were ordering, she was asking if I could order carbohydrates because she'd heard this rumor that I was on the shot, which I, for the record, I'm not on the shot. My weight has barely fluctuated in the past eight years since my daughter was born. But I got to thinking it makes perfect sense that people would assume I'm on it because I am the type of person who's always yammering away about intermittent fasting and glucose levels and all these things. It is somewhat of an obsession of mine, this art of living better. But then as I was thinking about it, I realized it's become such a fraught proposition now. Anytime anybody loses weight, we just assume that they've done it on Ozempic. And we also assume that it's an easy way out for people. And it's not an easy way out. I mean, as I write in the story, I had a family member who was on it and had a very difficult time. It is not pleasant. And I just wish that whether you're using it for diabetes or you're using it because you want to try to maintain your weight at whatever level, like I wish that it didn't have to be such a loaded proposition that we didn't make people feel ashamed for using these sorts of interventions. Like they're morally inferior to people who struggle and struggle and struggle to cut calories for years on end, especially because we know now that that old formula doesn't even really work for many people. Yeah. And I think that the part of it is that it's this diet culture that we were all brought up on where losing weight is good and gaining weight is bad. And there's this mixed up notion of virtue associated with uh, controlling your weight. And that gets really, really complicated when you're dealing with medical interventions. And I feel like we're entering a whole new world with all these ways of dealing with overweight and obesity with medical interventions. And what does that mean psychologically? And what does it mean culturally? Ladies, question from the man here. All right, eye roll. Because as I always like to say, look is not just for the ladies. There's a lot of good information in here. And on that subject of use the weight control culture industry, there's a story I thought was super interesting to me, which was about the rise of glucose monitors. And not just that, but what I think is great about look that you guys have done is there's very often some good takeaway hard intel at the end of it. And I even just in this one, how to lower your glucose levels the right way, which is a way to sort of like control body weight by monitoring your sugar. And I love that story. My favorite story in the issue, just saying that. Oh, good. Well, it's about really people wearing glucose monitors who don't have diabetes and they're wearing them in order to find out what their blood sugar levels are so that they can control their eating. And it's really not 
a diet. It's really about, and it's not just sugar, it's simple carbohydrates and a lot of other foods that have high glycemic index like corn and rice and things like that. But it's really about kind of hacking your metabolism and perhaps even preventing disease and increasing longevity. So it's a more health story than it is simply a weight story. But it's interesting. I feel like if you could think of a theme, a sort of underlying theme for this issue, it's about control and about how beauty is really about controlling nature in a way. And I have a kind of superficial story about brows and how we've gotten obsessed with brows and grooming brows and with this little area of the face has become this outsized business and obsession. And I kind of feel like when our world feels out of control, we try to find a tiny thing we can control. And it might be our weight, or it might be our brows, or it might be some sort of minutia that makes us feel as if, okay, the world is in order, even though, of course, it isn't. That's fascinating stuff. Well, we also have a story about sex and how no one's having sex anymore. And we've heard about people in their 30s and 40s who aren't having sex. And it sort of makes sense, given the fact that those are the years that you have little children running around and you're absolutely dead exhausted. But it's also people in their 20s are not having sex as frequently. And it's kind of alarming. I think it speaks to a lack of connection and a lack of human connection in the way that we're living virtually and on our phones. And whether it's cuddling up to Netflix or Twitter before you go to bed or the rise of porn. So that's a big story by Jill Karkman, who, of course, makes it hilarious. Linda, one of my favorite columns is what we sort of think of as our back page, which is called Getting Into Bed With. And this is when we obsess over sleep. We have Scarlett Johansson this month, and she's very revealing. She is so funny. I mean, we started this column as a kind of getting into bed with because we want to know about people's sleeping habits, because that's endlessly interesting. If anybody can figure out how to get to sleep and stay asleep, I want to know all the answers. But it's also about your beauty habits before you go to bed. And it's also about sex. And she is so funny. She's obsessed about the pajamas she wears. She doesn't wear a nightgown. She gets twisted up about the temperature, about the mattress, about the sheets, about the way that she sleeps. She's married, of course, to Collins, who she calls a writer for a late night comedy TV show, which, of course, we know what that is. But I like the fact that she's kind of coy about it and how he gets into bed practically in his clothes at three in the morning and she doesn't enjoy that. She would like him to wear clean things to bed. Maybe she should read Jill Cardman's piece. <laughs> and she also has a skincare line. So that's another moment that she can talk about that, which is a quite good skincare line. Okay. So one of the things we tackle and look to is consumer culture, right? And how it impacts the way that we live now. And Brennan Kilbane, one of our star writers, we have many, star- they're all stars, but Brennan we took one for the team. He went out to Meadowlands, which is a part of New Jersey, apparently, and went to the second largest mall in America. What did he discover during his afternoon at American Dream? Oh, my gosh. It sounds so much like a nightmare to me, but I am not a mall person, which is why I live in New York City. But so many of us Midwesterners, we grew up in malls. And so it almost to him was like returning home. And he this mall is the second largest mall in the world in the U.S., It's 3 million square feet. It has 350 shops and multiple theme parks, including a ski slope. And it took 16 years to build. And not coincidentally, it was built on swamp land, which kind of says everything. And then they flew open their doors on March 2020 to have to close them immediately because of the coronavirus. So it's a mall trying to justify the fact that shopping malls are not dead, although we're not 100% sure whether they are dead or not, are dying. And they're, it's questioning sort of the future of retail as well. And all of us as consumers and what our role is in this whole scene 
and consumer culture. Because really shopping is entertainment. It never hurts to try, as we say. That's right. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for this great issue of Airmail Look. Once again, for the people in the back, how do we read it? Well, you go to airmail.news backslash look. You can also follow us on Instagram at Airmail Look. We will have all of your beauty and wellness inspo all day long. That's for sure. Thank you, Linda. Thank you both. Thank you, Bye. Linda. Bye-bye. Michael, am I going to be seeing you with a glucose monitor strapped to your arm from now on? Is that what I should expect? No, I like the takeaway service of it, which reminds you like there's the first meal of the day, breakfast is important to set your glucose level. So start with a savory meal of like eggs and like maybe some vegetables, because then you kind of set your body up not to get that sugar spike. And so there's some ways to just be very strategic about how you're eating rather than getting the ozempic and all that stuff anyway. But it's a brilliant issue. As everyone, as I always say, it's not just for the ladies. Definitely not. We have something for people of all genders, people of all ages, people of all persuasions. It's a great little treasure and we hope you love it. All right, Michael, it is the weekend. We have lots of things to do. Tell me exactly what we should be watching and reading. We both got tipped to this by Graydon Carter, our co-editor-in-chief. It's a little movie that when I first saw it advertised, I was like, are you kidding me? I was so skeptical. A movie about a video game. And then I thought, you know, I just sat through a limited series based on a video game that would, that's of course, HBO's The End of Us. But this is a movie called Tetris. Have you seen it yet, Ashley? I did. And I have to say, I had low expectations and was pleasantly surprised. That's what I said. I went in like, okay, I'm off. All right. Prove me wrong on this. And Tetris, for those of you who didn't grow up in the 80s or have been in Under a Rock, it's the story of a video game that was actually created in the Soviet Union, but it was started to lower workers' productivity. And it stars Taron Egerton as a guy named Hank Rogers, who's this savvy programmer who sees it demonstrated in Las Vegas in the 80s and babe comes determined to bring it to the western world right yes indeed it's a fascinating look at a moment that was yeah it's complex at times it's kind of it's a little bit like trying to keep track of all those falling tetris blocks but it's fun it's fizzy it's got a lot of energy and if you're looking for just a rather than having to commit to a limited series right now and looking for something fun to watch there's that we're in a world now where we're making movies based on video games and even sneakers with the release of air the matt damon Ben Affleck movie about the making of the Air Jordan sneaker. So got that coming up. I can't wait to see that. I highly recommend everyone buy their latest. Those of us love Air Nike to wear Nike Airs. We should buy them now because I'm expecting a global run on them as soon as that movie comes out. I've seen whole families wearing them in the last few weeks, just walking down the street. Family of four. Everyone's got their Air Jordans on. So marketing has begun. So the movie is called Tetris and you can see it on Apple TV. And you, Ashley, what would you like to recommend? Are you watching Shrinking? I've been raving about Shrinking. I'm in love with Shrinking. Yes, I recommended it a few weeks ago. I know. That's why I just wanted to make sure that we're still aligned on this because thanks to your recommendation, I've been watching it. I love every episode. It's so good. I find it, I think I said this a couple weeks ago, I'm liking it more than Ted Lasso. I just think it's a little smarter, moves a little faster. I like the characters. I love Jessica Williams as Gabby, Harrison Ford. Like You can just see this getting multiple Emmy nominations. It's terrific. Yeah, Jason Siegel's great too. We said we would withhold judgment on Succession, but we do have to talk about it for two seconds because now we're two episodes in. I have it on good authority from someone who's seen the first four episodes that there are surprises ahead, so we should keep watching. But I have to say, I find this show so inherently unlikely. I mean, look, we're New York media people, so this is a universe that we pay a lot of attention to, but I find it so strange that in this show, there is not a single likable character. Everyone 
is incredibly annoying. These kids are beyond spoiled. So after three seasons of a show without a moral center, like it's a little bit of a downer for me. And I have to say, everyone's talking about Shiv Roy and her fantastic style. I've got to make a shallow point. I do not think she's one of the best dressed women on TV. In fact, I think she could use a tailor and perhaps even a new stylist. I'm sure there. I've said my piece and we can go on with our day. Brooke agrees with you. Brooke went and talked to me the other day. She's like, I don't get Shiv style. Like she does not dress like she's a billionaire. It's not even just like the clothes. She's like, this doesn't add up. Whereas everyone else is. And I will agree with you. When I first started watching season one, I bailed out halfway through because I remember I was like, I said, there is not one redeemable character in this thing. And I bailed out. And then it was Brooke who, when season, she kept going with it in season two, she heard her watch. She's like, you got to get it. So I came back into it. I agree with you the more, but I think that for me, I've started to see it much more as a dark comedy with Cousin Greg and Tom and the Disgusting Brothers now and that they're named and seeing that sort of a side of it. But look, the big question is, is it going to end badly if it does for who and for how many people? So we'll see. All right. Well, apparently we've got to continue watching and we've been on that note, Mike, we have to stop this episode. People have things to do. Thank you all so much for joining us. We wish you a wonderful weekend. Michael, please read us out. Morning Meeting is produced by Airplay Productions and edited by Jesse Cannon. Our co-editors are Graydon Carter and Al Sanders Stanley. Our chief operating officer is Bill Keenan, and our deputy editors are Ashley Baker, Chris Garrett, Nathan King, Julie Vitale, and Ash Carter. Our CMO is Emily Davis, and our music supervisor is Randall Poster. The theme music is The Cute Monster by the Buddy Colette Quintet. A new edition of Airmail is published every Saturday, so please subscribe and enjoy all of our stories on airmail.news, which we update every day. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Airmail Weekly. We will be back here next Saturday with another edition of Morning Meeting. In the meantime, be sure to subscribe at Spotify or Apple Music. But most of all, thank you again for joining us.